This is American Fashion Podcast. I'm Charles Beckwith here with Kathy Sheppis. Hello to our listeners. We're going to talk a little bit about an interesting designer from the recent past. And um, his name came up recently because Netflix has a Halston biographical miniseries, which uh, many of our listeners, I'm sure, have already seen uh, and binged. But um, it's based on the book Simply Halston by Stephen Gaines. I don't know much about him. And the book itself was not re-released with the series. It was going for about 800 bucks on Amazon the other day uh, to get the old copy. Um, in the series, which stars Ewan McGregor, playing the designer Halston, actor Jake Mikesell plays John David Ridge, uh, the book and series being based on real events. Uh, but the character is based on a real designer, and we're speaking with him now, John David Ridge. Welcome to American Fashion Podcast. Good afternoon. Nice to meet you. Good afternoon. First question is, were you consulted for the book or the film, and, and what does it feel like to be fictionalized? I was not consulted at all for the film. Uh, I know Steve Gaines, and we talked. He came over to my house in, at that time in New York, and we had a long talk about the good afternoon of talking about Halston and what it had been like. Do you feel like that made it onto the screen in, in the Netflix series? Basically, yes. I thought it was a, it got across what it was like. Um, times and places were moved around. Um, and I can see for dramatic point exactly why they did it. But um, there's a scene where I'm with him, and it's supposed to be 1987, but it was really uh, 1984. Things like that. But I think it made more sense in their thing. And the basic thing, um, I think they got. I mean, the thing that I was afraid that in the documentary that was done a couple of years ago that I thought was whitewashed, and I suspect, to be blunt, that it had to do with his fact that Halston's family were the producers, um, was that in this, the drug use was quite accurately portrayed. And I think you got the fact that he was not really a victim of corporate America, as so many people of his friends and family tried to paint it, that he really was a victim of himself. Um, immensely talented. Was he as brilliant as he seems to have been? Yes. Yes, he was. He is probably certainly the most brilliant dress designer that I should say, and including costume designers, um, as far as making and creating clothes. He, he taught me so much. He could surprise me. It had gotten towards, the t by the time I was there, which is late in the story, it had gotten to the point where he would not walk into the workroom because his hand shook too much and he didn't want the workroom to see that. And he would at night, which is when we did most of our work, um, you know, between six and nine, say, or sometimes ten, um, he would get his form there and he would tell me what to do and then I would pin it the way he said. And then every now and then he would say, no, no, not like that. And he would f take a piece of fabric and flip it the opposite way and suddenly it was just beautiful. And just when I thought I knew where we were going with it, he would surprise me. So is being open to that surprise part of what made it 
made it easier for you to work with him? Well, it was not easy to work with him. He was very nice to me, and he never yelled at me. There were a couple of us that he never yelled at, but very, very few. I mean, he would reduce the workroom to tears almost on a nightly basis. Um, he was very much like a person who pulls wings off of a fly. And not to take away from talent, brilliant. But um, when I was young, I was a PA for Janus Films. And I was very envious one night of um, Cy and Bryant, who owned Janus Films, that they were going off to a big gala with all the, the stars of their movies at the Swedish legation at the UN. And I said something, I was 20 at the time. I said, oh, something like, I wish I were able to go. And Bryant said to me, when you get older, John, you'll discover there are people that you would hang on your wall that you wouldn't want to have dinner with. And Halston is an example of that. I mean, he was brilliant. And his clothes revolutionized, and they did all the things, and all the allocades are totally deserved. But he was not a very nice person. And this is, this is not really unusual. People always seem surprised when... But Picasso wasn't a very nice person. You know, ask any of the women. Um that had to work with him. They could tell you. Um, but nice and, and talent not always go together. And when they do, it's really wonderful. You just kind of wonder how much that is tolerated now, today. Less. But still. But still. I'm always... I shouldn't be surprised that it's tolerated. But it was tolerated for so long that I don't think a lot of people have adjusted to the fact that it's that there might be something wrong with their behavior. You know, I never I don't think that it ever occurred to Harvey Weinstein that he was crossing any line that he wasn't allowed to cross. But I mean, seriously, I mean, but you but it's I think that's very true. Um, It never occurs to most of those people perpetrators, that they're doing anything that they're not entitled to do. I mean, I was, when I was 21 in my first job, I was sexually harassed uh, by the assistant to the man who owned the company. And I was terrified. I was 21. I had a fabulous job with great opportunity. And I thought, I'm going to get fired. And there goes my career. Yeah, it's fear. And it's fear. I mean, it's fear that you just, because you don't know what you're dealing with. I later realized, after I'd worked there a longer time and got to be friends with the owner, that if anyone, he'd said anything, he would have just laughed at him and said, oh, don't be silly, and that nothing would have happened to me. But I don't, didn't, but you don't know that. And I think that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, thankfully, it's all starting to change. That's, yeah. what, that's just what's important. So you've designed for um, everything, really, like stage and film and television, and then you went into this position as a creative director. Like, what was that transition like? Well, I've always, I've had two careers, one of making costumes and making fashion, and then another one of designing. And I've combined them at different times, uh, gone back and forth between them, 
Uh, I've run large costume companies. I had my own costume company in Los Angeles for 25 years. Um, working for Halston was very different. Um, I'm glad I did it because I learned a lot. Um, I learned so much about how to fit things. I mean, he was brilliant. Um, but this one was, a, I was so naive about him that when I took the job, a friend of mine, costume designer, said to me, she said, how are you going to deal with the drugs? And my response was, what drugs? Well, I found out, um, you know, but it was all right. I mean, Halston and I kept a, he didn't involve me in that. So that was just, you know, and when I had to interrupt him before he was ready to be interrupted in the daytime, um, he would sort of, he didn't yell which most people, if you'd walked into his office before he was ready about four or five o'clock to talk to people, um, he would have just let them have it. But he, 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 well, he knew that I wouldn't come to see him unless it was really, really important. And he respected you, and basically you became his voice. Well, in a funny way. I mean, um, the way it's shown in the movie is kind of different from what really happened. But in essence, it's... That was the relationship. It doesn't show the two of you touching fabric at the same time and, and, and collaborating in that way. Um, did you have a live opportunity to, to actually collaborate with him? I don't think it was collaborate. I wanted to do what he wanted. And it was my job. Because as I say, he wouldn't go in the workroom. He just wouldn't go in there. And one of the main part of my job was to talk to him and find out what he wanted and then go in and interpret that to the workroom. And a couple times, he would explain something, and I would head out, I would leave his office, I'd get halfway to the workroom, and I realized, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't, I did, I'm going to have to go back and ask him some more questions. And he was very good about that. I mean, the assistants all sort of huddled in a, in a scared mass, like, oh, my God, that man's walking back in there again. He's, there's going to be blood. But um, he, was, he was fine about that. I said, I'm sorry, Holston, but I really don't, under, I don't understand to be able to explain it. So I hate to bother, but can we do it again? And he was, that he was fine with. But that was really what my job was, was to make it happen. Um, the Martha Graham thing, uh, he never thought it would be done because we had four days to do it. And he wanted me to bring the entire workroom. We had a, must have had 12 Cadillacs, stretch Cadillacs, to bring the entire workroom over to, and it was the New York State Theater, not City Center. Uh, why they made that change, I'll never know, but they did. And uh, we got there and he said, well, what I said, it's everything's finished. And he couldn't believe that it was actually done. <laughs> but I said, I don't, I mean, I had just left costumes to come work for him. And the first thing I had to do was a Martha Graham ballet. Uh, I said, I don't deliver half finished costumes, Halston. Don't worry. We'll, we'll be there. And um, that was the first one. And after that, he was, he was, it was, Productive. 
So how many years were you working with him then? And what was the transition like? Was, was, was then corporate guiding you more on what direction to go into? Well, one of the things that I was supposed to be charged with from the corporate, from the corporate side was to keep tabs on, to keep control of the money. Well, this was ridiculous because I couldn't say no to him. So how can I keep? So about three weeks after I started, I went in and saw Carl Epstein, who was one of the nicest men I've ever worked for. And I think he was, he became a, a stand-in for what people like to think corporate America is. But he really, he was, I learned more from him about how to run a company and how to manage people than from anyone else I've ever worked for. But I went into Carl after about three weeks and said, um, I'm going to leave. I said, I will stay f uh, for the next few months through early fall. I'm not going to leave just before a season opens. But I said, I can't tell him no, so I can't do what you've asked me to do, which is control the money. Because if on Friday afternoon he wants everyone to work on Saturday, all I can say is, well, how many do you want? And so when Carl said to me, don't leave, things are going to change. And that was the first intimation. I worked with him about nine months uh, is all. And then, um, as they say, the shit hit the fan. I mean, he just, um, he and the S-Mark people were just on two different continents. I mean, two different planets. They, they, um, and everyone knew that lurking up there behind in the wings was cocaine. A lot of it. A lot <laughs> of it. I mean, he it would be delivered by the kilo. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Victor Hugo showed up one night with two kilos of coke in a briefcase. Carl, it's too bad he's dead. He had wonderful stories. Um that he somehow managed to usher Victor out and have that not end up in the newspapers. So then once he was, once he left, mm -hmm. um, were you consistent, were you designing as well as pulling from the archives? I wasn't pulling from the archives at all. At all. Mm -hmm. ne never did. Uh, because what I had to design was J.C. Penny. J.C. Penny was in a horrible mess when I got there. And that was something that the management from SMARC was hoping that I would somehow magically solve. Um, in order to sell at the prices that Penny's does or any of those stores do, you have to work way ahead of time. And I had never worked at that end of the industry. I mean, I've never, I've always done costumes or the most expensive of of clothes and a $20 blouse or a $30 blouse was totally outside of my but I got on a plane and I went to Asia and I learned how to do that in about three weeks um you just go and you learn that was the job um so the archives didn't help us a lot what where the big problem was that when I started they were working about three months out. 
So all the fabric orders were rushes. The shipping was all by air from China and Hong Kong and Korea. Um, every, it was the most expensive way you could possibly make clothes. And where the average blouse in pennies was between 25 and $39 in those days, um, Halston's blouses cost 75 So they may be worth that and they were lovely, but that customer was not in JCPenney. Uh, and as soon as things got marked down to $35, they sold. And my first orders from them was to get the schedule up so that we were working a year ahead of time. Huge shift. Huge shift. And I did that. And within huge a, shift for all your people. Yeah. Well, within six months, we were a year out. It took me six months to get there. But um, we were doing it. I mean, I was in Asia four times a year for a month each each trip in one factory after another. And they would make a sample. They caught the pennies. People would cost it out. We needed to take $2 off of it. So I'd sit there and literally just on the floor, draw, redraw take the pattern. Take a sleeve off. Take, well, change how the, the sleeve was cut so it could fit in the fabric. You know, I mean, all, of, all those things that are just basic to low-cost clothing. And um, that's what we did. But um, people would say, how can you work a year ahead of time? What about fashion? Well, at that end of the market, we're not... You can work a year ahead of time. Let's just say that. You, you're, it's not a big secret. You, I mean, people make a mystery out of it. But if you go to Milan, you'll see what everyone's going to be wearing a year later in America. Because everyone was there, like I was, looking at what's in the stores and what people are wearing. And you see everyone you know <laughs> sitting on the Via Monte Napoleone. And... Um, they're all there doing the same thing, having coffee and watching. Right. It becomes easy, yeah. easier. I mean, well, it's point. not a secret. Mm -hmm. There's nothing magical about it. Um, now, what you do with that and the colors that you do it in and all that. But um, So I just I have a, a direct product question because sure. as I watched um, the show and having seen you know, many, many, ver you know, seen how many times Halston has changed hands over the years. Mm -hmm. um, it was always the same aesthetic, pretty much, that was being worked on. And in the show where they showed, obviously, the caftans, but all of those printed, like, ombre, tie-dye caftans, mm -hmm. I don't remember that. I actually don't remember that being They're a all there. Part. They're all there. Oh, we made, I mean, they were amazing. We made many of those on the made-to-order for uh, Jacqueline Kennedy or Nassus. She, they, we made but a I lot of those But I feel like why tans. hasn't that piece of it been a big part of the rebirth? You'll have to ask all those people. Because <laughs> when Halston was there, it, he, he only had the first two owners. Mm, you know? Right. One of the problems about it is that there's that someone said to me, and it's true, that other than for Eliza Minnelli and myself, everyone's dead. There are a couple models that are still alive that are with us. But um, it's 
almost everyone you saw in that movie is not here anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but Halston only lived through one change of person. Um, and since I left, you know, every few years, someone revives the name, someone sold the name and tried again. But they didn't, they weren't Karl Lagerfeld. And that was the problem. Can you talk us through a little bit of the rest of your career? Um, oh. You started on Broadway and, and then you went into this and you've gone back to costume design. I started um, at... What kind of shows have you been involved with and all that? Oh, I started school at Pratt in fashion. And then after that, I went to NYU Tisch School of the Arts in theater design. And I got a job in costume working for what was then the best costume company in New York. And it was one of those companies that people would see that on my resume and I would just get hired because that was on my resume. And um, I did that. I then went off. I was hired by John Hausman to come run the costume department at Juilliard when they moved to Lincoln Center. So I did that and I... The amazing thing about Juilliard is that the people you work with, I mean, I had worked with Martha Graham there. You work with Jose Limon in the dance department. You worked with amazing people in the opera department and, the, and in the theater department. They were all these amazing people, Marion Seldes, all sorts of people taught there. And it was just like if you were studying violin, the first violinist from the Philharmonic was your teacher. It was an amazing, wonderful time. Um, then I went off and I decided I really wanted to design and not build costumes or make costumes as much. And I worked, I did all the regional theaters in the country, the Goodman in Chicago and Denver and St. Louis and all sorts of Oregon, places like that. And then I got hired to come and run Brooks Van Horn, which at the time was the largest costume company in the world in New York. And... Um, that was also a big learning experience. And I designed a lot while I designed some shows that David Mamet had written, like the original production of Life in the Theater. I did a lot of ghosting, where, uh, which is not unusual, a lot of people do it, where um, my name isn't on it or I, my name was there as costume supervisor or something like that. And someone else who never appeared except on opening night would get the credit. Um, and that's not unusual. A lot of people do that. I mean, um, I did the uh, Edward Gorey's Dracula. And after it was a big hit, he did the sketches so they could put them in the souvenir program. <laughs> but he sent me two of his books, uh, Amphigory 1 and Amphigory 2. And he said, everything you need is in here. And he came to the first dress rehearsal in Boston. He never came to the workroom. He came to the first dress rehearsal in Boston, and we spent about an hour doing the first 15 seconds of the show. And he said to me, this is the most boring thing I've ever sat through. And he left, and he came back for opening night in New York. <laughs> but um, that, too, is not unusual. Uh, I did that. I do after that. Oh, then I worked, um, I went and ran the costume department at the National Theatre in London 
Um, and I came back to America, and Halston hired me. I was offered three jobs, and Halston paid about four times what the National Theater was offering me. So I came home, and I don't know. I've thought about that often over the years because I, I loved working in London. And after Halston, uh, what, did I, what did I do after Halston? It's a total blank. Um, oh, I went to California and started... Um, and started my own costume company, making for movies. And um, in there, I designed a, some 18 ballets for Bob Joffrey, who I had known for years. The first time I worked with Bob was in 66, when I worked for Ray Diffin, and we made uh, Green Table. Uh, and then I designed what Bob got me to design. Um, well, first I recreated the female Gaudet from London, and I had to work with Frederick Ashton and people like that. Um, and after that, but of course, I designed four ballets for the Joffrey in one year, and I made $15,000. So you don't design for ballet unless you can afford to design for ballet. It's a hobby, and it's your good deed, and because you love it. All those are quite true, but you have to have another job. And it must be harder, right? Because the these costumes have to move. They have to move, and that and is the whole... They have to breathe, and then they have to look good. Well, the difference is that in opera and in theater, the focus is on the face because you're listening to words or music. In dance, the focus is on the whole body. And... Um, you're not really looking at the faces. You're looking at, and you're looking then at how the fabric is moving on these people. And it's not how it, because a lot of the time in theater and in um, opera, in, unless it's a musical number, people are standing fairly still. And suddenly you have people who are in constant motion. So that's what has made, I mean, Martha Graham had designed back in the 30s all of her own works and the pieces the clothes that she came up with worked very specifically for those pieces if you ever see a chance to see Appalachian Spring those costumes are um, very distinctive and they work perfectly for the piece um, not many choreographers are equipped to design their own clothes but when they do it works um, so was there a production or a film that was your I don't know, your absolute favorite that you find yourself telling a story about it over and over? Well, the one that people out in California are most aware of was this was the first Spider-Man with Toby and creating the spider suit. And that was a six-month thing. And J Jim Atchison from London designed the show and, and designed it and... We really had a really wonderful collaboration of we would tr we kept trying all sorts of different things and different fabrics and different things until we got one that there were no wrinkles and you couldn't see any seams and it really looked magical because seams would have destroyed the the magic because it was it was supernaturally created. That's the thing with all those that kind of movie, all of those Marvel movies, is that you don't want to be aware too much of how it was made. It's just that it was there. 
Nothing can distract no, from the superhero no. image. And um, they have to be able to do all the acrobatics you could imagine, or the stunt double does, in those costumes, you know. Because if the stunt double flies into a wall and breaks a leg, that's too bad. But if it happened to the star, you're in real trouble. <laughs> you just get another stunt double, not to be callow about it. But that's... That's, the, That's a big responsibility. So uh, that was fun. I liked things like Seabiscuit was a wonderful movie to work on. Um, I love that movie. It's a, it was a very good movie uh, in many ways. Do you enjoy doing period costumes? Yes. I designed, um, under my own name, uh, Ring Round the Moon, which is a genre we play on Broadway in... Nine, 1999, and for which I got a Tony nomination, and um, that's 1912, and it's lovely. I was also Cecil Beaton's last assistant. Um, he was another one of those people that died on me in the middle of a production. Kiss of death, don't hire me <laughs> if you want to live. And um, I did two revivals of My Fair Lady, having worked with him on Broadway. And then a couple years ago, uh, I did a revival of it in Australia for Opera Australia. And Julie Andrews came and directed it. She's a wonderful person. I did both of the Princess Diary movies, made the clothes for her and for Anne Hathaway in, in those. Um, and that was just because they're such nice people. And they're making And they are, yeah. They're, they're wonderful they're nice people to work with. and they're very nice to work with. And it makes the whole process f fun. I mean, not that it isn't hard, but uh, if anything, it's harder because you don't want to disappoint them. Because you know what perfectionists they are and they just assume you will be too. Well, that was probably a very unique situation because they're both so sweet. Well, in, in Australia, Julie said to me one day, she and I were sitting in the wardrobe trying to remember something. And she finally she turned to me and she said, well, if you don't remember and I don't remember, who's going to tell us we're wrong? Because everyone else was dead. <laughs> and I said, I, that's a good thought. I'll remember that. And from then on, we were just, yes, that's the way it was. We've had a couple of costume designers on the show. And Anne Roth recently won the Academy Award for uh, Ma, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Mm -hmm. um, is there a, a tight-knit community of film and, and Broadway costume designers? Do you all get together and talk very often? We sort of know each other. It depends on where we are. I In the 70s, I did a lot of work for Anne and in the 90s. Um, I made the clothes for a birdcage for her. I made the clothes for, oh, she did a wonderful production of Importance of Being Earnest on Broadway. Um, she did the movie of Hair, which we made the clothes for that in, in um, New York. So, I mean, I've worked with Anne a lot. I mean, she's, she's brilliant. They don't come, they don't come better. And there she is at, what, 89 or something out there? Doing the oldest them? person to ever win an Oscar. Is she really? <laughs> well, I yes, don't doubt yeah. it. I mean, uh, I've known Anne since, well, I went to her 40th birthday party. So that's how long we've known each other. I love that. Um, when we interviewed her, she was working on three shows at once. Oh, she always is. It's like, 
She always is. And, um, so now are you, are you working on, are you wanting to work on things? Are you working on things currently? I am not. I think I have mm. retired because mm. I'm to the point where I don't want to work with anyone I don't like, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. and I don't need to, I don't have to. So if someone, but most of the people I know aren't working anymore who would hire me. There are, um, I'm supposed to be here. I have a publisher. I'm supposed to be doing a book on how to make 18th, 17th and 18th century men's costumes, which are almost always made badly. So, um, and it's been a pet peeve of mine. And so it was sort of, if that's how you feel, then fix it. That's fascinating. You know, and that's good. So, so, so what is it that most people don't understand about it? Oh, everything, <laughs> everything, the men's particularly, um, well, the women's are pretty bad too. The men's, they put modern shoulders in with shoulder pads. And if you look at a painting, Boucher, any of those people from the 18th century, late, late 70, early and 18th century, it's a very rounded shoulder. There's no such thing as a shoulder pad. They hadn't come in yet. They happened in the 19th century. And the, the pitch of the whole pitch of the garment, they tend to make them straight up and down. And they were in the 17th century. But in the 18th century, they started tilting, tilting them. The grain went at an angle instead of straight up and down. And the coats had a flare to the back. And that's often done. The worst, though, are the linebacker shoulders, which just weren't there. Um, and it's, but it's rare you get to do that. I mean, I made a lot of, of 18, what, 1793 for Scarlet Pimpernel on Broadway. I made those men's clothes. And I worked with Jane Greenwood, who is also a wonderful costume designer. I mean, just Jane has designed almost every, tons of things. Uh, she's been nominated for something like 18 Tony Awards. It's, um, and um, she knows her period. Anthony Powell, who just recently died, who was English, he has three Oscars for um, what? Death on the Nile, Tess of the Duberville, and what was the third one? He did the 101 Dalmatians movies with Glenn Close. I mean, he, Anthony was a brilliant man, but he also knew his history of costume impeccably. Um, so you have incredible knowledge from a historical standpoint and then just from a draping standpoint. So I think you should be doing Zoom classes. <laughs> no, I do do I do do a few master classes at a couple universities uh, every year. Um, you have to have a very tough skin to do those because um, – I was doing one at a university that will remain nameless. And this one girl just sat there staring at me. And finally, she threw out her hand at me and she said, I know you, you are. You used to be famous. Good Lord. What did she mean by that? <laughs> I wouldn't know who I was now, but, you know, and you just, you have to, con you know, as someone said to me once, take as a compliment and don't laugh. 
my favorite was a student said to me, uh, I had at the last mo last session I had with them, I got I had my portfolio with me because I was going from there to a interview in another city. And I showed it to them. And this one young girl says, oh, can I, her hand goes up and she says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, um, that's just, well, that's just the most beautiful portfolio I've ever seen. Oh, it's just, that's a beautiful portfolio. And I'm saying, oh, thank you. Don't, whatever. And then later her hand goes back up again and she said, can I ask you something else about it? I said, sure. She said, where did you get it? I've looked all over for one with a zipper around <laughs> it and the pages that come in and out. So you need, I, I told her, thank you. I'm going to dine off that story for years. And I have, but you have to have a thick skin <laughs> to face those children. That's hilarious. Sounds like it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, whenever someone's getting a little f f full of themselves, I want to tell the portfolio story. That's a good one. John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak okay. with us. Um, this has been wonderful. Great to I meet hope you. that was useful. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was fun. Yeah, good, good luck editing that all together into coherent. I'm sorry, I realize I wandered. Thank you for listening to American Fashion Podcast. AmericanFashionPodcast.com is our website. You can access over 250 previous episodes by subscribing to our archive on the website. There is also a Be a Guest form on the site where you can reach out to us about being a guest on the show. On Twitter, we're at AFPOD, and on Instagram, we're at American Fashion Show. If you particularly like an episode, please give us a shout-out and tag us on social media. Our voicemail line is 646-979-8709, or you can email info at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. But again, if you want to be a guest on the show, please use the Be a Guest form on the website. American Fashion Podcast is produced by Mouth Media Network, audio for business. If your company or organization needs a podcast, reach out to Mouth Media Network podcasts at mouthmedianetwork.com. This and all other episodes are copyrighted by Mouth Media Network. All rights reserved. Subsist, friends. Keep making things beautiful. Remain in force. And we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>